This is the Abolished Milwaukee Podcast, and for this episode, I'll be reading Part 2 of Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, U.S. Prisoners Collectively Resisting Against Systems of Death, by Colleen Hackett and Ben Turk. Breaking the Machinery of Death Physical self-defense is often one of the first and visceral responses imprisoned bodies have to the life-threatening situations of entombment, such as constant harassment, abuse, and neglect. After years of neglect and horrific conditions, prisoners often take extreme measures to preserve their lives. On March 12th, at Holman Correctional Facility in Alabama, rebellion broke out against notorious warden Carter Davenport and staff at the prison for their continued failure to address negligent conditions. After assaulting multiple correctional officers, Rebels took over a dormitory and lit the guard cubicle on fire, hoping to access the control boards. Another instance involves the most fatal prison riot and hostage-taking situation in U.S. history at New Mexico State Penitentiary in 1980, in which prisoners appropriated acetylene torches and cut their way into protective custody, where state informants were held who had taken advantage of a reward-for-information scheme that spread paranoia and dissolved the possibility of social cohesion. These actions are sometimes accompanied by imprisoned testimonies. Prisoners in New Mexico released lists of demands during the uprising, and the Holman prisoners circulated photos, videos, and posts via contraband cell phones in an attempt to visibilize their conditions of living death. Their words augment and explain the activities, but it is the direct action itself that interrupts, even if temporarily, the barrage of state violence that limits and neutralizes their existence. In both of these instances, and countless others, Imprisoned rebels' actions, however violent, occur in the context of daily desensitization and the dehumanizing violence of confinement and living death. The use of physical defense in asserting agency amidst the material and social depravities of state terror cannot be overstated. Many prisoners argue that the reason physical self-defense doesn't occur more often within prisons is because the impulse is unnaturally restrained by the knowledge that the consequences are almost certain and certainly severe. Cesar de Leon, a captive of the Wisconsin Department of Corrections, describes the crippling anxiety and paranoia and paranoid life in such circumstances can produce. The prison authorities and employees did everything they could to humiliate me, break me down, get me to respond violently, and demonize me. But I knew their intentions, so I composed myself as best I could and tolerated all the disrespect and abuse. Cesar writes that eventually his mental state of mind was dangerously and extremely unpredictable. I would laugh for no reason wake up in the middle of the night terrorized, and I entertained the idea of retaliating. Eventually, he did snap out, as he writes, and attack a staff member. So when I saw her, something snapped inside me. Her sight triggered all the humiliation, torture, and worst memories I had endured. I felt my blood boil and rush immediately to my head. 
I felt disoriented and um, and had a mental blackout. When I regained consciousness, I was laid out on the floor being restrained by guards and inmates. The guard accused me of having stabbed her, another inmate, and myself in the process. Cesar was put on administrative control, AC status, where he remains to this day, but still resists. In 2016, he and 30 other prisoners at two Wisconsin prisons resorted to a hunger strike, demanding a one-year limit on AC confinement, and stating an intention to die in protest rather than endure solitary any longer. Instead, the DIOC gained a court order to force-feed the strikers. Most of them broke and resumed eating after the force-feeding started, but a few held out. Cesar held out the longest, enduring more than 250 days of force-feeding before the DOC negotiated. They granted Cesar a transfer up to a segregation unit at Racine Correctional, where he remains to this day, protesting his continued isolation. The state's denial of Cesar's agency and bodily autonomy demonstrates the consequences of corporal incapacitation. Cesar was not only enduring a social death, but also trapped in a body he was no longer allowed to control. And yet, he was, a- he was held excruciatingly responsible for that body's actions. Physical resistance, including violence, is not always a premeditated strategy, and is rarely worth the violent consequences imposed by the prison. But according to some prisoners, it is often a necessary way for incarcerated people to re-inhabit their bodies. In the case of Cesar's mental anguish, which is not an uncommon response to incarceration, violence seems inevitable. In many incidents, physical attack comes as a last resort. Even the most violent eruptions, like the hostage-taking at Vaughn Correctional in Delaware in January of 2017, occur after prisoners pursue both official grievance channels and unsanctioned but pacifist protests without satisfaction. The Vaughn Uprising was a planned extension of previous efforts. Dwayne Statz, who admitted to coordinating the uprising with six unnamed others, spoke about this escalation at trial. My goal was to do something to expose this place. It was mainly about the governor at least acknowledging what is going on. These petitions, lawsuits, peaceful protests in my eyes, that stuff's run its course. On September 9, 2016, the 45th anniversary of the infamous Attica Rebellion, prisoners prisoners from Alabama, Ohio, Texas, and elsewhere had called for labor strikes and nonviolent demonstrations. Various formations sent out lists of demands attempting to engage in political processes to create lasting impacts on the conditions of their confinement. At Kin Ross Correctional in Michigan and multiple Florida facilities, Prisoners attempted nonviolent protests, but when attacked in response, they took a more direct, if shorter-lived, route. They tore down surveillance cameras, pushed guards out, and destroyed everything they could. They attacked the, mecha- the mechanisms of death directly. Like Cesar de Leon, imprisoned rebels know that retaliation for such actions is assured and will be severe. Like Dwayne Statz, they know attacking the prison will not free their bodies or improve their conditions of their confinement, but it will gain attention and assert their human presence in a society that ignores their existence. 
if we consider these actions as self-defense against social death rather than against bodily incarceration, they are successful. These various uprisings can often break the prison's social barriers by inspiring outside prisoner support organizations to forge relationships with prisoners and to publish their writings, organize disruptive demonstrations, and reestablish their presence in society. Through rebellion, the prisoners regain agency, thus unsettling the imposition of the social death process. Producing counter-hegemonic critiques. Amidst the struggle to survive, Many imprisoned people have developed a strain of critical intellectualism that challenges the foundations of the U.S. white settler social order. This incarcerated scholarship grows from the lived experiences of those who are often excluded from society and academia. Alongside the growing visibility of imprisoned resistance, there is a resurgence of writing by prisoners produced and circulated in radical communities, as well as other parts of society. Much of this strain of incarcerated intellectualism is influenced by Afrocentrism, Marxism, and anti-imperialist lenses, though there is a wide ideological variation among prisoners. The intellectual strain of prisoner resistance grows from the daily experience of self-defense and preservation. Because imprisoned people experience horrendously traumatic violations of their physical and social selves, their scholarship often focuses on how these terrors manifest while asserting an antagonism to the state authority and legitimacy. As anarchist prisoner Sean Swain describes in his pamphlet titled The Colonizer's Corpse, the purpose of the prison regime is to produce utter subservience, which may involve extreme measures. Quote, Segregation and isolation are trauma. It hurts. What you are experiencing is designed to be painful. The state, the authorities, the ones who keep you locked up have designed a system and have perfected that system for causing you trauma. The principal coercive techniques of arrest, detention, deprivation of sensory, stimuli through solitary confinement, threats, and fear. The ones who keep you locked up will use a combination of these things in order to cause a response from you. The response they want to cause is debility, dependence, and dread. They are not doing this to help you or to reform you. This is designed to destroy you. This is very important to know because it can guide your approach to this trauma, unquote. Swain and others find this awareness helpful in developing an outlook and mental approach to enduring that which is designed to break their animus. In the corpus of prison scholarship, this lived intellectualism vividly and viscerally depicts the experience of carcerality. Similar to Swain, Comrade Malik, a politicized prisoner in Texas whose valediction we borrow for our title, briefly encapsulates this point and ties it to the social death process. Quote, they, prison administrators, knew that not only were, they, were we being taken away from our families for decades at a time, but also we are no longer considered human beings. Unquote. This explicit polemic stance 
that often accompanies incarcerated writing serves to reiterate a sense of urgency and crisis about the massive system of caging in the U.S. with the intention of inspiring response from current or would-be supporters. Ivan Kilgore, imprisoned author of Domestic Genocide and founder of United Black Family Scholarship Foundation, UBFSF, connects this struggle to the work of Gilmore and others explicitly. In his essay, Not Worker, But Chattel, he centers the relationship between blackness and the carceral state. Quote, Rendered civilly dead by U.S. law, I am to the state as the slave was to the plantation master. The same relation of coercive racist violence applies. My black body is always vulnerable, open to an envel enveloping state terror. As property of the state, I exist in direct confrontation with the punitive core of capitalist relations of force. Every movement I make carries with it the possibility of authorities lash. I am the bodily raw material that gives the prison industrial complex purpose and social meaning. End quote. Kilgore's example supports and extends Sean's theory by using an Afro-pessimist lens and more squarely articulating the anti-black roots of the prison and the continued racialized terror of neo-slavery. Keith Lamar, an incarcerated survivor of Ohio's Lucasville uprising, recognizes the same logic of exclusion and isolation that is applied generally under racial capitalism. Keith has lived in solitary confinement on a special long-timer status since 1993 uprising. He and three others sentenced to death after the uprising faced countless classification hearings which have not yet yielded which have not yielded a reduction in security level, despite decades without serious infractions. The Ohio Department of Corrections opportunistically built a supermax prison in the in the aftermath of the uprising, and Lamar's essay, Supermax, connects the lives of all the people who've come through his cell block over the years with the larger prison system. Quote, at some point we have to stop and ask ourselves what is being hidden away inside these places. We hear terms like the worst of the worst and blindly assume that we are being told about the worst murderer, the worst drug dealer, the worst rapist, etc. It never really dawns on us that the framers of the term are in actuality talking about the worst human beings. But these are not evil people. The vast majority of those who are thrown in these places are shattered beings. Indeed, when one lives in a country where profit takes precedence over human potential and almost all of the legal avenues to security have been blocked in order to create more wealth for the rich, one's very existence becomes a crime. And whether this takes the form of prostitution, selling drugs, or stealing cars, the goal in every instance is to stay alive. This does not make one a bad person. The supermax prison is but a signpost to indicate where we as a nation are going. It is a preparation, then, a moral gut check, if you will, to see if the U.S. citizenry is willing to sit back and allow the virtual entombment of its fellow citizens. And so far, it doesn't look good, unquote. Lamar points to a larger social injustice that drives the criminalization of, so of survival among marginalized populations. 
pointing to racialized capitalism for its creation of a surplus and disposable population. Lamar also indicates, in, in, indicts a public that allows the state and economic structures to operate in such a way. The words cited thus far are a small sample of rebellious writing, of rebellious prison writing that recognizes the penal system to be carefully designed and highly successful project of mentally and socially destroying people, incapacitating their humanity. This punitive objective is entangled in an anti-black logic and is at the very core of carcerality, leading incarcerated intellectuals to be skeptical at the idea that we improve the web of institutions that are inherently designed to subjugate and disavow racialized populations. The democratic origins and founding principles of the U.S. prescribe different schedules of rights for whites and people of color. And imprisoned rebels are deeply aware of this difference. Though white supremacist institutions have transformed and shifted in shape and scope, the socio-political order remains structurally racist, thereby troubling the myth of democratic progress. Certainly, abolitionists and incarcerated organizers support non-reformist reforms, those incremental legislative and policy gains that fit into a more long-term abolitionist vision, but nonetheless, imprisoned rebels point to the contradictions of living in a modern democracy and the existence of an expansive network of entombment. And that concludes part two of Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, U.S. Prisoners Collectively Resisting Against Systems of Death by Colleen Hackett and Ben Turk. Abolish MKE, news and analysis from a bad place. We work to publish and promote anti-authoritarian and abolitionist interventions in the so-called state of Wisconsin. Please do not hesitate to contact us with any questions. Abolish MKE at protonmail.com.